Hello, welcome back. This week it is our honor to share a conversation we had with Dr. Christina Cleveland. Christina Cleveland is a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She is the founder and director of the recently launched Center for Justice and Renewal, a nonprofit dedicated to helping justice advocates sharpen their understanding of the social realities that maintain injustice while also stimulating the soul's enormous capacity to resist and transform those realities. Dr. Cleveland holds a PhD in social psychology as well as an honorary doctorate from the Virginia Theological Seminary. She is brilliant. She's an award-winning researcher and author, and she's currently a professor leading a research team at Duke. I've admired Dr. Cleveland's work for a long time. This was one of my favorite interviews. We got to do one of my favorite conversations I've had in a really long time. So sit back and enjoy the conversation. And when you're done, click some of the links in our show notes and go see more of what Christina is up to. She has a Patreon page, which I encourage you to go and become a supporter, where you can basically join a learning community to sit with Christina and learn as she learns and teaches. And also, you can go check out the Center for Justice and Renewal, an amazing nonprofit. You can support them, see more about what they're doing. Those links will be in the show notes. Okay, enjoy. Okay, where should we start? Um, so I've actually been in a room with you, uh, but we didn't get a chance to talk. But I worked at uh, Reality San Francisco when uh, we hosted you to do a lecture. I think it was 2016. Oh, wow. It's part of like the mm-hmm. year of biblical ago. literacy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You worked there. Um, I did. Yeah. And no longer do, which is part of the long backstory as to why we're doing this podcast now. Mm. Um, kind of went, it went south. <laughs> mm. Uh Anyway, that's a story for another time. But then I also realized uh, you got your PhD from UC Santa Barbara, and I got my bachelor's from UC Santa Barbara. Oh, when did you graduate? Uh, got my bachelor's in 2009. Oh, wow. We were there at the same time, because I got my PhD in 08. Nice. I still can't believe I got to live on the beach. Oh. <laughs> Wasn't it the most... It's like the most beautiful It was place. really beautiful. I was not... I was not mindful enough to notice that. <laughs> at the time <laughs> you're probably doing like 20 hour days in the library oh huh? yeah at least and i actually had um a windowless lab so oh that's brutal <laughs> and i was working like 80 hours a week yeah so um actually i think i went to the beach maybe a handful of times the whole oh, like yeah. and i spent my whole <laughs> 20s in santa barbara so now i go back and i'm like wow it's so beautiful here <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there just should be no PhD programs in in beautiful places, right? It's just not right. I well, I'm glad that I'm I'm grateful that it was a beautiful place because I did notice sometimes driving on the campus, like wow, it's really pretty. And then I would go into my windowless lab, and then I'd come out at the end of the day. <laughs> but I mean, I'm glad I didn't get my PhD in like Wisconsin, you know? Right. <laughs> at least it was it was just great weather all the time so you could oh i ran oh. outside a lot i lived downtown so you know i didn't live like particularly close to the beach but yeah it was an interesting time in my life maybe uh besides finding a couple common connections maybe it'd be fun just to hear you know i kind of know of your career story a little bit from afar but maybe it'd just be fun for you to give a little short summary of your work and where you've come from and maybe sort of major inspirations. Sure. Yeah. When I, when we were sharing air in Santa Barbara, I was working on a PhD in social psychology and I was actually planning on going into just regular social psychology, academic work. That's what I'm trained to do, to do experiments on humans for the rest of my life. And I actually really loved a lot of that work. Um, but about a year after I got a, I finished my PhD, I was still in Santa Barbara because my first academic job was at Westmont College. They happened to be hiring a social psychologist the year that I was graduating. And so that's like a once in a generation sort of thing. And so I ended up taking that job. And it was there that it was my first introduction to white evangelicalism in, on an institutional level, really, because I, had, I hadn't gone to a Christian college and... I didn't really grow up in a white evangelical church. We dabbled, like I went to like Awana at one church and stuff like that, but I didn't, I didn't grow up in that space. 
And so um, I was just thinking, oh, I'm going to take this job at Westmont. They're Christian. I'm Christian. Should be great. You know, <laughs> and I just had no idea what I was getting myself into. And pretty quickly, I realized um, that as the only black faculty member there, one of just a handful of single faculty and um, one of like maybe 20% female tenured or tenure track faculty that there were a lot of divisions going on. And so even though my PhD had been on like groups more broadly speaking, I decided to take all the research and expertise that I had acquired and apply that to the problem of groups in the church. And that at Westmont kind of shifted my trajectory in a really beautiful way, I think, because I realized there's a, there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed and no one's really addressing them from a social psychological perspective, mm. mainly because a lot of social psychologists are pretty secular, you know, like a lot of academics are. And so they aren't particularly interested in the church. Um, and so that, that sort of led me down the, what I would, what would be called the reconciliation hole that I kind of climbed into. Um, and I was naive and probably hadn't done as much interior decolonizing as I would, as I would have hoped. And so I just thought, Oh, this is the way to go. Like we'll just do reconciliation and we can all figure out a way to be together. And I wrote a book about it and that I have a love hate relationship with. (laughs) Hmm. I love it because I love younger me. I hate it because I disagree with a lot of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so um, just learning, you know, firsthand as I mean, I was kind of on the front row of a lot of reconciliation efforts in the church, kind of like in that, uh, you know, 2010 on <laughs> and um, saw the ugliest sides of evangelicalism, really, you know, and um, I think a lot of people didn't didn't recognize that when they saw my work because I think a lot of people don't see black women's humanity not really um and we're just seen as strong and like reliable and resilient and so no one was really asking like I mean I was my publishing company and a bunch of other people were sending me out to speak at all these conferences and they're just thinking like oh look at you like you're on big stages that's that's a that's a categorically, unequivocally, like, good thing. <laughs> and no one was asking, like, hey, how are you? Are you being treated like a human being? Are you, are, are you getting as much out of this as we're getting out of you? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, too, with the Black Lives Matter movement um, that came about in, like, 2014, um, well, I guess a little earlier with Trayvon Martin, but it certainly got sort of branded and named in 2014, I was able to see how um, how much reconciliation the way at least the way it works in the church in the Western church isn't enough. So um, so I think I turned I turned a corner and became a little bit more strident, and um, that's been neat. <laughs> um, I don't know how much more of my story you all want. I, yeah, but that's right. Now I'm faculty at Duke. Um, I've been here for four years. Um, I used to be the professor of reconciliation. I changed my title (laughs) a few years ago and to reflect just the different type of work that I'm doing now and my distancing from that, that term. What's your current title? Uh, It's just a professor of organizational studies, I think. Yeah. Hmm. A little generic. But I assume that reconciliation word, maybe like an overly naive or optimistic yeah, it's that kind, kind of? of. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a good idea. I think that justice and equity and reparations have to precede it, and most people aren't willing to have that conversation or do that work. Mm-hmm. And so then, when you just tack tack on the label reconciliation, it's just a little kumbaya. Like, let's all just be friends and um, not address the real power differences or the reasons why we need reconciliation. Yeah. There's some good critiques of it that have written primarily, you know, t- mostly by black scholars and co- going to Duke was really good for me because it was the first time that I had, I think when I first came to Duke, I maybe had like nine or 10 black colleagues on the faculty at the Divinity School. Hmm. Usually I was like the only one or one of a couple because um, I had worked a lot in evangelical schools. And um, at the time, since then there's been a mass exodus, but um, at the time it was like 
the most prolific black church studies program probably in the world. Um, and so right away, my colleagues kind of took me to task for even having that title because there's so many critiques mm. within the black church studies world of how white people have used the term reconciliation to really like maintain the status quo. <laughs> and so, um, that was good for me to, it felt like affirmation because I was already you know, deeply questioning it myself based on my personal experiences. But then for a bunch of people who have studied that concept within the context of theology in the church to say, yeah, you need to think about this was really actually affirming. It didn't feel like they were attacking me. It felt like they were being my friends. <laughs> hmm, cool. I'm curious what uh, some of the, you mentioned, you know, going to Westmont and seeing like, oh, this isn't it was Christian. I'm Christian. Everything sounds good here. Like I, I'm just curious. Like what were some of the first things that, or some of the biggest things, maybe in that experience, or just in your experience with yeah uh, the evangelical Christian church that were like, whoa, okay, I didn't, yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming, <laughs> or like, oh, we're talking about a different Jesus here. We're talking about a different. We read the Bible differently. What were some of those experiences? Mm, you know, they were really subtle back then because it was 2008, and I think. I think a real spotlight has been um, placed on the evangelical church because of Black Lives Matter and like the Me Too movement and Trump, you know. And so I think, um, I think it's just the writing is just on the wall, on the wall in a really prophetic and powerful way now, where you really have to be willfully ignorant to ignore it. Um, but back then, it was way more subtle. It was like death by paper cut, you know. I mean, all my mm -hmm. colleagues were explicitly nice <laughs> yeah. um, and welcoming. It was more the institutional structures that made it really clear that I didn't belong. Um, so for example, my first year there, um, West, like half of Westmont burned down because Santa Barbara's always on fire. Right. It's this weird. Yeah. I don't know why people live there. I really don't because <laughs> every summer we were like evacuating. Yeah. I remember at one point I was just like, I'm not evacuating. Like if I perish, I perish because <laughs> I'm just not going like, to evacuate again. That was those 80 hour work weeks getting to you probably. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, <laughs> exactly. Um, but anyways, the, you know, the, the school, a lot of the school burned down. It was really sad. A lot of my colleagues lost their homes. Um, and so we were all like at the beach and everyone's like, well, let's sing, you know, the unofficial official hymn of the school. And, um, it was greatest life faithfulness. And I didn't know it. I didn't grow. I mean, I grew up in like a lot of black church spaces and so I didn't know it. And then one of my colleagues came up to me afterwards and was angry and said, I thought you said you grew up in the church. How do you not know this song? And I was just like, uh, do you know the Negro spirituals that I know? Like, I mean, you know, like it was yeah, just so, yeah. it was just those subtle things where it's like, you don't know our language, you don't know our customs. Um, there was a lot of like, it's a very Presbyterian school, even though it's non-denominational, supposedly. And so there was a lot of just liturgy that would just happen in faculty meetings. And there was no, it, there was nothing printed out or like there was no actual <laughs> like bulletin to follow. It was just, you're just supposed to know this. Um, so those were some of the some of the examples. One of my colleagues told me that um, he was really glad that I was there because he harbors all this prejudice towards Black people, and you know I'm just glad to meet you because you just defy all the stereotypes that I have in my head. And so you're like one of the good ones, and you're helping me like rethink and repent and like change. And I'm like, and like I was just like, well, I'm glad you feel better. <laughs> like, Wow. So, yeah, I mean, just a lot of just really awkward, horrible, dehumanizing conversations where mm -hmm. people were trying to, it was so obvious that they like, didn't know any black people. Not really, like maybe they went on a missions trip to like Ghana one day, but they didn't have any people who were their peers who were calling them out mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, one of my colleagues was mad at me because I didn't know the doxology. Wow. Um, it's just stuff like that. <laughs> but it's it's interesting because over time you start to think that you're the crazy one because you're the only one who, like, you don't have, I didn't, Santa Barbara is like 1% black. And so unlike Durham, where I can leave Duke and go and hang out almost exclusively with black people, whether it's at Target, whether it's the roller rink, whether it's church, like they're just massive black spaces. 
um, it wasn't like that in Santa Barbara. So I didn't have anyone to process with. I didn't have a black therapist or anything. And so I was just like slowly in my mind questioning my own perspective, you know, like, well, Hmm. I don't have to know great is thy faithfulness all like 18 stanzas in order to be Christian. Right. You know, but I'm like new, I was 28, you know, naive. So it was interesting because at the end of my two years there, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and I just, I didn't know, but I, I didn't know I was because I was just so used to being like strong and surviving and being in all these meetings where I was the only woman and the only black person. And, um, and then I was at Trader Joe's one day and I saw this white man who seemed to be a manager yell at, um, one of the employees of color. And I just burst out crying from trauma because I was so, I had been so triggered by that like power dynamic and that's when one of my um someone i knew who's like a therapist was like you need to get (laughs) you know yeah Before you jumped on the call, I was uh, kind of raving to Nate that, uh, okay, so you started and are the director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, yeah, uh, which I'd love to hear you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how recent is that? Um, just started in January. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I was just reading through your, your mission and vision statement and I was telling Nate, it's one of the, the best four paragraphs I feel like oh. I've ever read. <laughs> Both because it, it was uh, beautifully articulated, but uh, honestly, just utterly compelling mm. um, of like what your vision is, uh, obviously for what you're doing with this organization and the kind of training and, but even just like for what we're here for, mm. <laughs> right? Like I've read a lot of church uh, mission statements in my life that usually just make me angry and frustrated. <laughs> and uh, I, I've never read a, a church mm. mission statement that made me feel the way that this uh, vision statement statement felt. So I feel like I could, I could pick your brain on pieces of it for hours, but, uh, maybe, uh, the, one of the paragraphs, I'll, I'll just read the first two lines and sure. maybe, um, yeah. use that as a jumping off point. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was cause you and I have a podcast called I was a teenage fundamentalist. I did know that, but you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It says, The Center for Justice and Renewal is a call to social action and spiritual vigor. Our mission is to create a more equitable and inclusive world by nurturing skillful justice advocacy and the depth to act on it. At the Center for Justice and Renewal, we help justice advocates sharpen their understanding of the social realities that maintain injustice, while also stimulating the soul's enormous capacity to resist and transform those realities. So maybe we start, you just shared some some little, you know, you call paper cuts, uh, examples when you were, uh, at Westmont, but maybe obviously we can't cover all of, (laughs) all of the social (laughs) realities underlying the injustice in a podcast, but just kind of share with us some, some important ideas, some of what you learned, some of, uh, what you think is the uh, most important, uh, focus for people who are committed to, to justice. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I feel like this whole center was, is, is born out of my own need for it. Um, I've just learned, I mean, I started doing justice work vocationally pretty young, um, late twenties and was like pretty quickly thrust on a fairly large stage. And so because of my, some of my speaking gifts, my intellectual gifts. And so I think, um, I, I had so much to offer 
and I had a lot of energy and I was definitely motivated. <laughs> um, but a lot of my, um, a lot of my, the fire under me was anger, resentment. And I don't think anger is bad. I think anger can stop serving at a point, but, um, in general, I don't think it's bad, but a lot of, you know, as, as a long-term fuel, it's probably not <laughs> particularly helpful. Um, self-righteousness, um, grief, and those are all sacred, sacred experiences. Mm -hmm. But when I, when we don't have the time and the space or the skills or the knowledge and the guidance to make those experiences sacred, then we can't, we can't keep doing this work. Not, not from a place of love. You know, I, I was, I, I, I am able to do it from a place of fear. And I found mm -hmm. that, um, that keeps me going for a pretty long time. Fear is a powerful motivator. Fear that, you know, if I don't say it, it won't get said. Fear that if I don't do it, it won't get done. Fear that if they don't change, more people are going to get hurt. Fear that I have to, if I don't, if I'm not the protector, if I'm not, you know, handling every issue, um, then it won't, it'll just be devastation. And so, um, I realized I was making a lot of my justice decisions based out of that fear and that fear that was really fueled by resentment and self-righteousness. And um, so I realized, you know, there has to be another way. <laughs> and that's not, that's not often modeled. I think, um, I think a lot of long-term justice leaders had much deeper spiritualities than we see. It's not publicly modeled. What's publicly modeled is people speaking everywhere and protesting everywhere and writing bajillions of books. <laughs> um, and I think the people who have longevity, at least healthy longevity, um, do a, have a lot of quiet practices. And so I kind of wanted to invite people into exploring, you know, how do we how do we communally or somewhat publicly do engage in these practices so that there is a model for people. Um, so yeah, so it's really, I mean, I just crashed, I've crashed and burned enough times that, um, for the last few years, I've been on a much different journey of, um, really finding balance between the spiritual mm -hmm. work and the, well, I, I think it's a false dichotomy, spiritual work and justice work, you know, um, but mm -hmm. I've learned a lot. Um, one of the models that I have is actually from, um, the Ohlone tribelet, which I grew up in the Bay area. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up hearing about the Ohlone Indians. Um, and actually Ohlone college is in the town that I grew up in, in Fremont. And so, um, I read a book about the Ohlone culture and people and they um, on average worked 19 hours a week in terms of industrial work and so like they're you know basket weaving fishing hunting child rearing and the rest of their work week was spiritual and communal practices and so for example the hunters would spend five hours in the sweat lodge praying before they would go hunt for four hours and just like this seamless integration of spiritual work and industrial work and i just thought gosh what a beautiful example of how to be integrated how to how to do as much internal work as we're doing external work in terms of long-term, sustainable, healthy relationships with ourselves, with others, with the divine. So that's what the center is about. And you know, what's so amazing is like the more I've done this work, the more effective my justice work has been. You know, you think, oh, I'm going to take some time and go on like a silent retreat or just go to the beach. It doesn't even have to be anything explicitly spiritual. It's like, I'm going to go roller skating, you know, um, <laughs> and I'm going to just move my body mm -hmm. and sweat and let some energy out. And the more I take, engage in those practices, whether they're like explicitly spiritual or not, the more effective my justice work, justice work becomes because I'm able to make choices based out of love and not fear and speak out of love and not fear. Not all the time still, I'm still human, but, <laughs> but more mm. and more so. I'm excited about what we're doing. You know, all of our programs for this year are full. We're hoping mm. to start some, do some programming specifically for white folks next year. Mm. And so, you know, just we're just gonna keep doing what we do. It's exciting. Cool. Seems like even just just seeing your face as you talk about it, like you've got a lot of joyful energy. Uh, doesn't feel like this feels like a heavy burden, right? It feels like this uh, 
feels like a light, a light, joyful journey that you're on. It can feel that way. Yeah. You know, there are, um, it's really dynamic. You know, I think, um, the more I, um, the more I let go and release, the, the less, the lighter it feels, mm. you know, I to be, you know, full disclosure, I spent a good chunk of this morning grieving and crying mm. over injustices. So particularly around women's bodies. Mm. And so, you know, but because I'm forming practices and building them into my regular everyday schedule, mm. I'm able to um, engage in the flow of life, which is in- inhaling and exhaling, you know, and I don't know, um, I, I have a Patreon page and this, this week's post was on inhaling and exhaling, mm. you know, and just we inhale, we inhale so much injustice, especially once we wake up to that reality and we see it everywhere. And so we're constantly bringing it in. Um, and so what are the practices that we're doing to exhale? Like, um, and I found that the more that I exhale, the more balance I can experience and, and I can see the real joy in life as much as I see the pain in life. It's a journey though. (laughs) So you've mentioned roller skating, a fun one, right? Even, and then talking about this morning, just needing to, to grieve, uh, maybe just mention a couple other practicals. I know when you're in San Francisco, I heard you speak, uh, you had shared about uh, having a kind of like meditative practice in the slave spirituals. Totally. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of my work, I mean, I, I, I think I'm drawn towards the contemplative. I don't know if you all know the Enneagram, but I'm a one. And so ones are like. Me too. Oh, you are? Yay. Mm-hmm. I love us. Um, <laughs> you know, I, ones are just so good at like engaging serenity. Um, because we just see so much pain that it like serenity is like we're like magical at engaging it and so you know I love that but I also I married a seven Hmm. who's just fun 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 adventure (laughs) we might die today all the time and so that's actually I mean I feel like being married to him is a good spiritual practice Hmm. because we woke up this morning and he was like let's go on the motorcycle today and I'm like which one because he has multiple. <laughs> um, and so, um, so I think, you know, just letting myself be surrender to his fun is really mm-hmm. like helpful for me. Um, but yeah, I do like lots of meditative movement. I do, um, I do lots of meditation. There's a group in Durham that I meet with. Um, it's people of color healing from racial trauma and it's meditation focused on that. So I do that. Um, I'm part of so many like groups. There are three people that I talk to every day who are just amazing women who do justice work on the ground. And we just, we just check in for 15 minutes every day. Um, and that's just a wonderful ongoing exhale. Um, they know what's going on in my life, traveling, music, kind of the normal things. I exercise regularly. Um, cause that's, I, that just feels so good in my body. I spend a lot of time in my sunroom. Cause it's just awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean, but certainly, I mean, in terms of just like some of the formal spiritual practices, I found it's so much more fun to sit with other people and to do centering prayer or, um, sing together. Um, I mean, I feel like the institutional church is becoming less and less relevant. Um, the more I become awakened to misogyny and anti-blackness that just runs rampant in so many institutions, including the church. So I find that so many of my like spiritual spaces are, you know, walking in the woods with friends and talking about what God's revealing to us that week or the questions that we're asking. And there's, there's a friend that I have who I, you know, devote a couple hours a week to walking in the woods with Hmm. and just communing. So yeah, there's, it's been neat to be a little more creative and think outside the box. Mm. Yeah. You look very pensive, <laughs> both of you. <laughs> I'm just trying not to hijack the conversation with you. So I was going to see if Nate has a question. Like, I feel like there's so many different directions I could go. I know that like a large part of the people that listen to our show and we get these emails all the time. Um, they feel like they're like nodding and they're like, yes, yes, this, I, I want more of this. This is, this is wonderful and beautiful. And this is how, uh, and they see Jesus and all of it, right? Like when you're talking, but then they, they go back to friendships and, uh, sometimes family that 
are calling them like not a Christian because they're interested in social justice and like wanting, you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of stuff. So I feel like there's this, there's this like dichotomy in so many people's Mm. lives between the few friends they have and the small community. They, some don't even have community around this, but like the few friends they have that are nodding and agreeing with them and, and like, yes, that, you know, press on brother, press on sister. And then the, uh, just the other, oftentimes it's family, sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's a church if they're still involved in that, like that, that are almost talking a completely different language. And I just wonder if, I'm sure you've run into people like this and I'm just wondering what, Mm -hmm. if you have any encouragement for, for those Mm -hmm. people or how you've sort of navigated some of that. Yeah. It's painful. Yeah. I think it's good to just name how painful it is. Um, I think when I first became aware that the spiritual community of my origins could not see the image of God in me, like just theologically could not, that was just really painful. And then to notice how their way of dealing with their fear was to control themselves and try to control me. there's just a lot of grief and I think it's good to just recognize that this is a painful transition. I think it's also a wonderful opportunity to ask myself questions about colonialism and patriarchy because to the extent to which I feel a tug in a direction because of what people's expectations are for me or what lines they're drawing in the sand. That just sounds a lot like a white patriarchal God who's trying to control. Mm. And I understand, I mean, we're all social beings. I'm a social psychologist. So I'm like the first person to sign on to that. Of course, we're going to be influenced by the people who raised us and, you know, have been a big part of our lives. But at some point we have to ask ourselves, you know, do I really want to be free Hmm. and what does freedom look like? And at some point it's getting healed from caring whether we're crossing the lines that other people are creating for us. Hmm. Um, This is hilarious because I pretty much don't ever quote old dead white dudes, but I'm going to quote that Pilgrim's Progress book. Um, because at the beginning, and I haven't read this in forever, but I remember reading it years ago. And at the beginning, like he's sitting out on this journey and his wife and like his family and his friends are all like, don't go like, stay with us. You're abandoning us. Like, and he just runs away and he says, no life, life. Like I have to, I have to pursue life. And that really resonates with me. Um, because I stayed in I stayed in the lines for so long because I thought that's what's going to win me social approval and inclusion and certainty. <laughs> and I think what's really powerful about like um the way theology is used to keep people trapped is just like and I I, I appreciate how this one feminist writer described it. She was like, you know, like patriarchy keeps us from really thinking about um, what's next and going beyond what we've been taught by teaching us that the earth is flat and that if we sail off into the horizon, we're going to fall off the edge of the earth and like cease to exist or like go to hell or something like that. Um, And really the truth is that the earth is round. And if we sail off into the horizon beyond where we think we can beyond where we know where we're going, we're actually just going to come full circle with more love, Hmm. you know, and more experience. And so I guess my thing is like to grieve and to, to offer ourselves compassion and kindness. And then also say, do I really want to be free? Because I did this, I did this thing where I tried to meet people's expectations and, and, and conform to their ideas of who God is. And that didn't work. Hmm. I still felt tons of shame and I still felt like I wasn't ever going to be good enough and I felt afraid and I felt like I didn't have a voice. You know, even um, at your at your former church, reality, it's like I couldn't even preach there on a Sunday morning Yep, because I'm a woman. I, I, I spoke there. I gave a lecture 
on Monday night. And I remember asking like, oh, you know, should I go speak there or not? You know, like I remember having a discernment process around it because I actually am familiar with the reality churches because of reality Carpentria. Mm-hmm. I went there for like four weeks when I first got to Santa Barbara. It was pretty, um, I felt pretty um, antagonized as a woman there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't even know, I didn't know why I felt terrible. I just knew I felt mm-hmm. terrible and I, and I felt like it had something to do with the fact that I was a woman, <laughs> but I was like 22, you know, like I didn't, right. I didn't know why I didn't have a feminist theology or anything. Um, so I was like, Oh, should I go? Should I not? You know, but and I, I wouldn't go now if I were invited, you know, I've changed that much. Um, in just a few mm-hmm. years because, you know, staying within the sliver of humanity that certain churches afford me either because I'm black or a woman or some combination of both or a wild black woman (laughs) or whatever. It's not worth it. I can't believe you went to reality carp. Yeah. I was there like the second Sunday, like it started and then I moved to Santa Barbara that week. And so Hmm. I was there literally the second Sunday and that guy Hmm. Britt, was that his mm. name, Britt? Yeah. Yeah. He was like youngish, you know, and like it was all these men, and yeah, I just remember every Sunday at for I went there for four weeks because it was the only church I knew, and I actually had I'd gone through like a spiritual crisis that summer, and so I just kind of felt like I should just go to church, you know, mm. like I just and someone I knew recommended it, so I went, and I went four weeks consistently because I'm like. A very faithful person <laughs> and I actually joined a small group and I just remember some of the comments that were made on this in the Sunday morning service about women were just I they didn't sit well with me and then we had this small group leader who seemed like such a nice guy and he was like being trained up to be um, a leader in the church <laughs> he was but um that guy I'm sure he's a nice, he, he was a nice guy, but I have more leadership ability in my pinky than he did in his entire body, you know? And so like, I was just sitting there watching him leading our, not, I was sitting there watching him not lead our group you know, <laughs> and being like, why can't, I don't need to be the leader. I'm in a PhD program, but why can't we get like an actual leader <laughs> to like run the group? <laughs> And then for them to be like, well, it has to be a man. And he's and he's the man who's available, who's called, like all these things. And I was like, what? And I had grown up in black church spaces where women preached and taught. And I still think they're patriarchal. Don't get me wrong. But like in terms of just some of the offices that women were allowed to fill, like that, I had never encountered that before, where it was just like, no, literally you have to have an incompetent small group leader who's a man because mm. <laughs> because we don't let women lead. I was like and here I am like starting a PhD program I'm like wait there's none of this computes like <laughs> so I just remember you know after four weeks of going there being like I'm just mad every time I leave my mom was like why do you go there and I'm like that's a really good question I should just look for another church and I did I I wish my own mom had asked me that question seven and a half years ago <laughs> mm, yeah uh yeah. So, Can I just add something else? Not about that sure. specifically, but I, I feel like that's just the tip of the iceberg because, um, man, there's so much misogyny in the Bible and there's so much misogyny in Christianity and even the origins of Christianity. I mean, part of what I was grieving this morning was just how, like, how the Hebrews got their promised land. Mm-hmm. They committed genocide. Supposedly, because Yahweh told them to. And they just slaughtered entire peoples in Canaan. And all of the people that they slaughtered were cultures that worshipped the goddess. Hmm. And they were like matrilineal cultures where women had Hmm. relatively more power than in the Hebrew culture. And so it's just like this... Hmm. Or the story of Esther, where it's like she became a sex slave so that God could use her to deliver people. What? You know, like, and so I think at the time I was like so concerned 
I didn't, I couldn't articulate it, but I was concerned. Well, why can't women preach? Like I have, I didn't have any desire to preach at the time, but I was kind of like, but my aunt does and she's great, you know? <laughs> like, but now that I know more about archaeology and history and even just the way so much of Jesus's words were translated from the mystical Aramaic that he spoke into a very patriarchal language of empire, Greek, you know, like just, and what was lost in that. It's just, Mm. their misogyny runs deep. Mm. It's not just these like, I mean, I, when I think of Brit, I think of like fundamentalism with like skinny jeans on, you know, like, and it's just a new iteration. It's not, I don't think, Mm -hmm. I don't think they're to blame for these like deep undercurrents Mm. that go back a really long time. Yeah. It seems like you see that a lot. Like the you just said, funda- fundamentalism with skinny jeans on. I think that is this new wave of like neo Calvinistic reformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's the same. They. It's kind of a little bit repackaged, but it's the same type of stuff. It's just kind of in a trendy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, trendy it's really hipster trendy. churches or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's sort of the world that, that Tim and I both kind of came out of is yeah. the neo-reformed Calvinistic, you know, yeah. uh, answer for everything. Um, yeah. Rigid kind of backgrounds. That's what we were teaching in. Yeah. And yeah. So Which it's just is interesting so patriarchal. Yeah. Yeah. Someone just this week was asking me, someone who's like a lot more connected to that world than I am, um, was like, well, as you ask all these questions and explore all these different theologies, like, how do you know? whether you've gone too far. And I was like, that question in and of itself is so patriarchal. Like the question, how do you know? Mm-hmm. Like why you have to know what that drive is? Like like that's that in and of itself is just, it's so linear. It's so trying to control and predict and it comes from patriarchy, you know? But I, I think we don't even... It's just, it's just the air we breathe, you know, like we don't even know that we're not aware that we've been trained to think that way, motivated to want, to want those answers before we're willing to take a leap, which is kind of the opposite of faith. (laughs) One of the things that I've seen over and over again is like so many of us have been indoctrinated or at least like you know kind of led to buy in that the church has got all the right answers right mm-hmm. and the rest of the world is just missing out on our <laughs> on our perfect system or our perfect ideology mm-hmm. and so it kind of seems like many of us and I definitely went through this myself is like you just have to kind of whitewash all the problems and mm-hmm. like pretend that it's working mm-hmm. right pretend like I, there is a some survey came out this week claiming that like conservative uh, Christian women are the happiest self-reporting women in the country, and there was just this onslaught of people on Twitter like, that's just because you that's how you have to report, right? <laughs> if you if you're in that world, like the system is telling you that theologically you are the you are the best off, or you have you know mm-hmm. what everybody else needs, and it creates this sort of like. I don't know, almost like psychological like facade that we all put up and or like have to live into. So like I know for me, like letting go of that was so much of the scary part, right? And that analogy of like setting off across the ocean. It was like if I've believed my whole life that I'm in the promised land and I have all the answers, like f- coming to see the misogyny in the church or coming to uh, see the sexism, the patriarchy, the homophobia, the racism embedded in the world that I was supposed to believe is the solution. It's like a, a terrifying and disorienting uh, thing. So maybe just speak to that of like, you know. Mm-hmm. I actually I actually believe that conservative Christian women are the happiest. <laughs> in the sense that certainty makes us feel happy hmm. like we hate ambiguity as humans yeah. we hate it and actually i was i remember reading a study a cross-cultural psychology study um that looked at um korean culture and u.s culture and um found that 
like in a Korean culture, like in a Korean grocery store, at least when this study came out like 10 years ago, it's like, you know, you had like three options when it came to cereal. And in a U.S. grocery store, you have like 200 mm-hmm. options. And that was before the like organic, like, <laughs> non-GMO, vegan, like right. whole thing came out. And then the study basically showed like Americans get stressed out by all the options <laughs> relative to the Korean folks. And so I think, you know, I think part of the reason why conservative theology, even conservative gender roles, um, report satisfaction, people report satisfaction with them is because um, there's a lot of anxiety that comes from ambiguity. Hmm. And it actually, I mean, like, dictatorships are actually really efficient, and if you want, if you're stressed out by life, if you have like four kids, if you're not sure how to, you know, if you're off, you have a limited income and you're not in it, you know, you have to make hard decisions about what you're going to spend the money on, all that sort of stuff. It can be easier in terms of the cognitive load, emotional load on you to just say, okay, there's one person who's ultimately in charge. Hmm. And if, and I'll, and you're going to give me a theology behind it too. Great. <laughs> you know, like... And so I think particularly for people, so there's um, in social psychology, we um, have learned that there are some people who are um, high in need for cognitive certainty and some people who are lower in it. And some people are just naturally higher in a need for certainty. Like it's just, they, it, they're just built that way. And so folks like that, I could see why they're totally drawn to like, you know, a John Piper type church or whatever, where, you know, making their own decisions, they've always been taught that they can't. That they're not that they're not smart enough that they're a woman they're easily deceived whatever and so the thought of making their own decisions is actually terrifying hmm. and so oh great you're gonna hand me like a godly man <laughs> good like hmm. so in that sense it kind of makes sense I mean it was never gonna work for someone like me because I'm like a record low in need for cognitive certainty <laughs> hmm. <laughs> but for uh, I'm not I mean there's a whole population of people who are the opposite of me. Mm-hmm. who love Ikea and want to go in there and be told buy this whole bedroom. I like, I'm telling you what you need. Just buy it. Like there are people that's like actually a relief for them. Whereas I'm like, ugh, just shoot me. I don't, <laughs> don't make me even go in an Ikea, you know? <laughs> so that's all. Yeah. So that's, I would say, but I, wait, what was the comment that you, what was the question that you had? Oh, the comment I remember now when you've been taught to believe that you think you don't have a choice to say that you're not happy. Well, yeah. And especially as you're saying, you know, if some people are naturally oriented towards wanting lots of certainty and have maybe gone to authoritarian church structures because it's offering them that, then the idea of setting sail away from that. Never going to happen. <laughs> Never going to happen. Yeah. Well, and the gaslighting, right? Because what this does is it basically is ripe for gaslighting. So if you're a woman who's in that space and you're starting to question things, they're going to be like, see, we told you not to question things. You, are, you actually do not have the ability. You do not have the divinity in you <laughs> to question things. And that's actually what I felt when I was at Reality Carp. Like I, I would go out to lunch afterwards with people in church and I'd be like, I'm not sure I agree with the way he interpreted that scripture. And the people, everyone else at the table would be like, well, it's just, it's just, he's just, he's just, he's just reading scripture. God, it's just the scripture. Like there's no interpretation. And I was like, and because I'm low in need for cognitive certainty, I was like, yeah, that doesn't work for me. But everyone else on the table was like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just scripture. How could you disagree? <laughs> and so, but there's gaslighting. Mm. I got gas lit at that table, you know? Um, mm. And so I think a lot of particularly women, but not just women, people who are raised in those cultures, like this new book that I'm writing um, I is called God is a Black Woman. And I talk about how white male God is the God of the gaslight mm. and how like one of the ways that we are controlled by white patriarchal religion is by being taught to question everything that we think or we say Hmm. because we don't actually bear the image of god Hmm. (laughs) at least that's what we're taught we're taught you're a terrible sinner and you're basically worthless and the only reason why you're not completely worthless is because jesus died for you so basically you're worthless so don't you dare question anything we're saying amen 
Like that's like the benediction, you know, at the church. And so that's just gaslighting. And so of course people are going to be like, yeah, I'm happy because how can I be, I can't do anything else. I don't have the freedom to not be. So I think to go back to your point, it's like, yeah, like Mm -hmm. a lot of these folks don't even have the freedom. I know I didn't. Well, I mean, and I didn't even grow up in a reformed Christian home. I just grew up in sort of like a prosperity gospel type home. So like if we were unhappy, we just weren't praising God enough. Hmm. And so it's kind of that similar, like there's something wrong with me if I, if I'm not experiencing this like blessed life or whatever. So freedom's so much better. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the reformed world, it seems like the term, the gospel gets thrown around all the time. Like, and they all just kind of know what it means. And I haven't been in the world for a while, so I've kind of forgotten like exactly what they mean by that. But it, I think it all comes down to sort of a, a view of, uh, of atonement and penal substitution atonement mainly and limited atonement, all these things. But what, if we just leave all that behind, what do you, or how do you uh, think about, teach what the good news Mm. of Jesus is? Mm. I think that whatever is good news to, okay, so I'm going to say whatever's good news to black trans women is good news. Um, And because I, in our white supremacist culture, there's a pecking order and our culture is anti-black. And so there's whiteness on one end, there's blackness on the other end. And to the extent that you can conform to like white heteronormative patriarchy, you can be higher up on the ladder. So like for, for me, for example, you know, I'm straight cisgendered, um, PhD, upwardly mobile, married, um, attractive according to our society's racist standards of beauty, you know, thin, all the things. I'm about as, you know, Ivy League educated. I'm about as close to being a white man as you could possibly be and still be a black woman, right? Mm. And so like, if, if if I'm honest, there are a lot of people lower than me on the latter with black trans women being the lowest and it all makes sense because the average life expectancy of a black trans woman is 33 years old and that's actually lower than was the life expectancy of an enslaved woman in 1830 so an enslaved black woman and so like it's so predict like our society in the way it is organized is really predictable, like who's gonna be targeted for violence. And and so to me, it's like, well, gosh, what do black trans women see as liberating, as humanizing, as affirming, as beautiful? That's the gospel. Any way that I can speak into that, act into that, create spaces that affirm that, call people out who are challenging that. That's who Jesus is to me. That's what Jesus is about. Um, I mean, despite everything, despite all the deconstruction I've done, I still just am so in love with Jesus, you know, and who, who Jesus was and is to the people who are the most mar- on, you know, on the margins. And I think we've missed a lot of who Jesus really is because of Greek thought and language, which is what we have. And because a lot of churches don't even quote Jesus, they just quote Paul, who's like white male God's minion. So, yeah. <laughs> I think the way you answer that question is something that has been like bouncing in my head for for years. So the way you answer that is is what is good news? Specifically, you use black trans women as an ex- example of most marginalized people. Like, what would be good news? And and then from that, like, what must Jesus be offering? Right. 
But so much, I think, the way we've been controlled to to think about gospel is, what is Jesus offering? And then let's think about, therefore, what how must that be good news for us, yeah. right? It's the reverse direction of ordering. So you're a psychologist and you're a damn good theologian. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Can you like just help us understand the significance of the those two Centering. frameworks? Yeah, yeah. So I think what, so because we've, because Jesus has been translated into the Greek, which is this like very logical, ordered, patriarchal language and culture, um, I think we lost a lot of the ways in which Jesus was like very prophetically and like magically centering other people in even how he spoke his gospel. Like Jesus wasn't just going out proclaiming the gospel. Jesus was actually looking to the needs of people and responding. The gospel was what they needed. <laughs> they were they were proclaiming the gospel basically, right? So like mm. the you know a woman who's a sex worker comes to Jesus and they have a conversation. And through that conversation, the gospel is proclaimed. Like it's not just Jesus standing on a mountain. It's interesting that the the sermons that we that that survive are the ones where Jesus is standing on a mountain, <laughs> because he hardly ever did that. But that's very white mo God to just be like, uh, I'm like dominating over everybody and giving this like linear TED talk. Um, he hardly ever did that. Like most of the gospel that he spoke was just having. I mean, like he's talking with Mary and Martha, whose brother just died, and they're pushing him. Why aren't you here? Why why weren't you here? Why weren't you here? And it's in response to their longing, their conversation that he says probably his most theologically astute statement, which is, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's out of that conversation. So it's like the gospel is, it, Jesus preaches the gospel in, in centering the most marginalized. They were women. Hmm. You know, and you see this all the time where it's just this really powerful way in which you're right. It's the opposite of what we tend to do, which is this is the gospel. Here are the bullet points. Now fit it onto your life. It's on the other. Well, what do you need? What's affirming you? What's going to bring life to you? What's going to open you up to love? And, you know, so many people get concerned because they're like, well, if, if there isn't like a gospel, one big one that's universal, <laughs> that's universal. I say that in square, scare quotes because nothing's really universal. Everything, everything that's universal is really just for white men. <laughs> and so like, whatever. Um, and so it's this really interesting way in which, you know, we get scared. Well, if there isn't something universal, then how do we even know it's true? And it's like, well, Jesus was saying whatever folks needed to hear in order for love to be stimulated in them. Hmm. Do I love more? Do I love myself more? Do I love others more? Do I love my neighbor more? Do I love God more? Well, then that's the gospel. And then if we then do a power analysis and say, okay, that's for me, but what sort of gospels should I be leaning into? Well, it's the gospels that allow black trans women, indigenous Native American women, undocumented women to have love stimulated in them. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that clarifies it. It's still kind of, I think it's still different. It's different than what we, than what we're taught, you know? Right. So obviously one tragic consequence of that framing, right. Of just trying to fit some universal message uh, and then trying to conform to that. One obvious consequence is that it's allowed the church to perpetuate a whole litany of injustices towards people, which ends up with a culture where trans black women have a life expectancy of 33 years, right? Um, but it seems to me, and it's maybe pick your brain more on the psychologist uh, channel here, is like, doesn't, it seems like that's also doing something to to anyone who's forcing that framework of like, when you're trying to bend your actual experience of life, your actual emotional realities, <laughs> your actual moral intuitions, you're trying to cram them all into a box because you're told that, that's the universally true box, regardless of how it feels. Like there's some sort of um, like psychological disintegration uh, that happens that I actually think for me, stepping away from church world for the past two years, that's part of what I'm detoxing from, like learning how to trust my experiences more, like learning how to trust my sense of right and wrong, all that. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I've had the same experiences. Um, I grew up in like a home that was my parents loved as best they could, but they were they they loved by being spiritually abusive, you know. And so, hmm. like questioning, you know, we weren't taught to question to trust our own morality or or even the divinity in us. Um, and so, I think that's part of it. That's part of the the reclaiming and the decolonizing work that we get to do. Cause I think that's what like so many of your listeners are experiencing is that like feeling of, I, I don't trust that I'm taking a step that's right because my family members are calling me a heretic or something like that. Uh, the part I've been sort of reflecting on for a while is the, that sense that I think happens in the church and I don't see it happen at least as much outside of, uh, of the church is this like forcing our ourselves, our into psychological selves yeah. into a box that it seems like that has additional consequences mm. <laughs> beyond just whether or not the gospel ends up being a, a complete farce. Yeah, I think I wonder too if like that's the, the reason why you don't see it as much outside the church is because as a white man, you aren't often forced into to, to um, hmm. shrivel up into boxes, psychological boxes. Mm-hmm. But I think if you talk to a lot of women and people of color and LGBT, whoever else, LGBTQ folks or, you know, and I'm not saying you don't identify that way, um, but like I think um, the reason why I think white male God exists so much outside the church too is because I find that pretty much everywhere I go, there's an expectation that if I want to be accepted, I have to make myself less than... Um, I have to, I have to fit into some sort of box and oftentimes it is a psychological box. Um, and so, but I, but I think, I think the, you know, the sort of the interaction or collaboration of white supremacy and patriarchy are both at work in those spaces and like in the church and like in academia where most black female academics aren't allowed to study what they actually want to study because that's not valued in the academy. And so you end up start, you know, like I, I was, I was doing presenting some research and they were like, well, you didn't talk about how this relates to BART. <laughs> I was like, it doesn't. <laughs> like, but you know, that's again, that like, um, there's a centering, which is so yeah, powerful, I think. So I already wanted to ask you this, but then knowing that you're also a one, which I think I, I probably would have guessed, uh, <laughs> I have a selfish, selfish question. And like, there's so much wrong with the world, right? Like, there's another school shooting every week. Like, there's so much broken laws being passed that just seem like utterly inhumane. Like my struggle, I kind of tend towards cynicism, and I get pretty despairing. And so I kind of want to ask, and especially knowing if you're, if you are one on the Enneagram, like you can see all those wrong things too. Like, what's the goal? Like at the end of the day or the end of the year, like how do you measure your success so that you're not always drowning in how much is still unfinished or unfixed or, you know, unhealed out there? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think my goal has become um, yeah, it's yeah <laughs> it's really funny that you asked this question because my goal has changed. It really has. I I think now my goal is to have equanimity, which is a Buddhist is a term that's usually used mostly in Buddhist circles, but mm-hmm. Um, to see, to see the world as it is, both the good and the bad, and to do the work of seeing the good and claiming the good and celebrating the good, and also surrendering the bad to the divine and to community and not carrying it. Cause as a one, like I'm not going to stop working. Like I'm not a seven. I'm not somebody who's going to just like, you know, like I'm, so I don't need to set goals on like how many articles I write or like, you know, um, or how many, you know, how many people I influence. The goals for me are internal. Like, am I sleeping at night? Am I doing the practices that are going to help me find that to live into that equanimity, which means pursuing joy and also, um, 
practices of, of really surrender because it's too much. One of my um, one of my teachers, who's also one, was telling me that he described being a one as like um, feeling like you've been body slammed every three seconds. And I was like, that explains why I've been tired my whole life, you know. <laughs> and so I try to, because I'm gonna, I can't stop the body slams, but I can like look for the butterflies and the the full moon and those. So that's kind of how I, yeah. But I'm a, definitely a one. I love it. I mean, we make the world go around. It's we're just so great. Like <laughs> we're so great. I used to be mad at myself for being a one, but now I just love it. I'm like, it's good to have an opinion on everything, dubious or not, <laughs> fully informed or not. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Thank you so much for Aww. spending time with us. Thank and you. Sharing your heart and your thoughts. Oh, thanks. It's nice to be on here. And for all the work you're doing, it's. Yeah, it's so needed and such beautiful work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've admired you from afar for a long time, so it's super fun to get to talk to you. And uh, fine, we actually had some some interesting common space. I had no idea we'd be talking about reality carpentry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, friends, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Uh, real quick before we go, we do have a second podcast called Utterly Heretical, and that's available to our patrons over on Patreon. So you can go to patreon.com slash almostheretical. We, we're just releasing a new episode now, and then another one's coming uh, next week. And we're going to be talking about the LGBTQ episodes we did and sharing our personal stories of changing on that topic from what we used to teach and why we think what we think now and how we got there. Um, stories, just things we did the, the wrong way in, in the past and um, kind of exploring that topic more. So if you want to hear those, yeah, just go on over to patreon.com. We'd really appreciate that as we continue to try to make the show in our free time and in our weekends. We're so thankful for uh, any help you can, you can give there. All right, we will catch you next time. For more information, go to almostheretical.com. Thanks, friends. <laughs>